All right. Here we go. Quiet. Problem. Bonjour, madame and monsieur. Welcome back to the Big Picture Podcast, where we take a look at the latest movie news, the films of today and yesterday, and put them all into some sort of context. Seated across the microphone from me is our master of ceremonies <laughs> and the great editor-in-chief of Film Buff Online himself, Rich Drees. And seated across the microphone from me is Mademoiselle Natasha Bogutsky, Film Buff Online contributing editor. And cinema enthusiast. <laughs> Hello. Hi. We're getting better about this opening. Yeah. Getting a, we're finding the right level of goofiness for it. Yeah. Okay. Um, (laughs) How'd you like my, uh, my French? I I was. Trivia. Trivia. Merci, monsieur. Je parle français au petit peu HMAT. That means I speak French very little and very badly. Yes, I noticed. Okay. (laughs) Thank you. Anyways, how was your weekend? How was, um. Thanksgiving weekend, or as we around here refer to it as Doctor Who Anniversary Weekend. Yes. <laughs> How was it? Yes. Oh, it was. <laughs> I mean, okay, granted we are You were going... there. You. Why don't you talk about it? Well, we were both there, but I'm trying to bring this into a conversation. Oh, uh, okay, okay. Yeah, I forget that other people in the room, uh, yeah. Yeah, so it was great. It was a lot of food. There was a lot of laughter, Mm -hmm. some dirty jokes told. You know how it is. Oh, my God. It was great. (laughs) Um, If I hear another quip about me having common sense, I'm going to lose my shit. Um, Okay, then. Moving on. Thanksgiving was wonderful. Yes. You brought me in uh, to a family tradition you guys had that I didn't know about really I don't think oh, of watching yes. Home Alone on and, Thanksgiving evening yes. yes and I'd seen it before obviously and <laughs> I've enjoyed it so that was it was fun just to be able to sit there with everybody and watch it while you know all the uh, digestion was going on <laughs> I, I don't think it's a film that I mean you can watch it by yourself and still enjoy it but you watching it in a group Mm-hmm. who all of them enjoy it. There is a it, it's kind of like watching in the cinema. Yeah, everyone's laughing well, together, you're having a shared experience. It's it's and, lovely. And that's the best part about watching a comedy is when you're watching it with a group of people and that laughter kind of like creates a very positive feedback loop. Mm-hmm. And you're all enjoying it and you're all laughing and it's wonderful. And yeah, we're sitting there going, "Well, that would have killed him." And that would have killed him again. And, and that's a broken back. Uh, yeah. And a concussion. Mm-hmm. And, I and that that's... is not Scranton Airport. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to bring that up. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just think, though. You know, they drove pretty much probably across Route 80 all the way to Chicago, which is how you would do it. Mm-hmm. So uh, from our area back uh, to get Catherine O'Hara home. And that would have been what? If it was a straight shot with maybe three bathroom breaks and maybe someone changing out at the wheel. 12 to 13 hours. That's not that bad. No. Huh. I've I've looked at it as possibly wanting to do that someday as a, do I want to go to Chicago for a couple of days? But do, do I want to burn two days out of that 
time just in travel. Mm. Whereas, you know, oh, maybe I could take a plane and, you know, it'd be a half a day each day. Or probably with all the nonsense of going through the airport and everything, getting there. Barely a half a day. Getting your rental car and everything. It might stretch out to, I'm not saving too much time here. Well, it, it depends on the. I think it depends on your your layovers and all mm-hmm. that. Okay, so and you could s- take a train out of either Philly or New York. Too. Yeah, I've I've looked into that just just casually, and I think that would be a fun way to see the country too. The one day, the one time that I actually took a plane, um, which was a couple years ago mm-hmm. from Charlotte, North Carolina, home to our our local. Avoca Wilkes-Barre Scranton International Airport, uh, <laughs> which is not the one at home alone, even though it's supposed to be. No. Nope. Uh, <laughs> I was actually through TSA in about 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. I spent the next hour uh, just kind of jawing around like the duty-free, and then I grabbed a quick bite to eat. And the... The flight home was about an hour and a half to two hours. Yeah. I mean, Max. you were you were right off, but you didn't have any luggage though, really, did you? I just had my um, your your carry on bag. My carry on bag, yeah. yeah so yeah, I mean, and that's, I'm, honest, that's the best way to fly if, if you can do it. <laughs> if I'm going somewhere though to like Chicago for um, several days, I, I'm going to be taking more than just what's going to fit my carry on bag. My carry on bag is probably going to be my. Um, camera backpack with all the camera equipment <laughs> so that doesn't get lost and then like an well, actual checked piece of luggage with clothes well i'll teach you brushes i'll teach you all the tricks for <laughs> packing in a carry-on you still get your personal item so if you want to mm-hmm. still carry like your camera bag and put it in like a um say a backpack that's a personal item that's not a carry-on oh okay. they don't count that interesting okay yeah um so welcome to the Big Travel Podcast. And, uh, yeah. Um, let's bring this back around, though. So if you're going to be on a train, what train movie would you watch? I would watch Silver Streak. If I was to be on a train? Yep. Not Murder on the Orient Express. No, but that would be the most lavish looking one. Yeah, true, true. Um, Definitely not North by Northwest. No. That one would probably be second for you. Yes. Hmm. Train. Um, Polar Express. Polar Express, okay. Taking of Pelham one, two, three, if you count subway cars as trains. Uh we don't do we don't do unstoppable or unbreakable. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> nope. 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 <laughs> Not a big fan of um uh, oh. the girl on train. Bullet train? Bullet train, yes. That'd be a fun <laughs> I would fucking do bullet yes. train. Okay. There, um, we brought it back to movies. Uh, these are our favorite train movies. No, it's, mm-hmm. it's, we've been talking about train movies yeah. for the last couple minutes. Um, it's a very small part, but uh, Harry Potter? Because why not? I would allow that, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Hogwarts Express is an iconic locomotive. Mm-hmm. Oh, very much so. I'm trying to think of some other iconic trains... In film, and and I'm sure listeners are probably thinking of their own favorite that we've 
not mentioned yet. The latest yet. Mission Impossible. And they're yelling at us. Yeah, <laughs> the latest Mission Impossible. The first Mission Impossible. Anastasia. Anastasia. Can we talk really um, quickly about how Mission Impossible, the latest Mission Impossible movie, uh, what was it, Dead Reckoning Part 1, part, mm-hmm. lifted pretty much an entire sequence out of it, the animated Anastasia? Oh, that's... That's an interesting accusation, and I'm not sure I don't disagree with you. So When the bridge blew up, half the train went over the side. I'm watching a mixture between Anastasia when the dining car went kablooey down. And I, I literally looked at everyone, and I went, and there goes the dining car. <laughs> and I've waited 20 years to say that reference. <laughs> And you also got a little bit of um, Lost World, Jurassic Park in there. Yes, very yeah. much so. Yeah, that's. I remember thinking that during the screening, going, "This seems familiar." <laughs> Mr. Spielberg, online too, please. Um, <laughs> some other great train movies, I would say, The General, Buster Keaton. Um, uh, very I know that's not iconic. Your, yes, it's I, iconic. I know it's not your favorite Buster it's, Keaton, it, but it's. I'm not a big fan of Buster Keaton. Mm. That being said, I am going to. Be the first to admit I've not seen enough of his work mm-hmm. to really give him full appreciation for the value that he has brought to mm-hmm. cinema as a whole. But the some of that work in the general is incredible. Oh, it's insane. It's so insane. And to see people watch that today and, and just like lose their shit when they realize, oh, this was actually practically done because uh-huh. there's no way else they could have done it. Well – I, I, as you know, I am a huge Chaplin fan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, his stunt work is whatever, but his emotional moments. Yes. Um, you know, my favorite Chaplin is the kid. Mm-hmm. I showed that to a friend of ours a couple of years ago who was, I think, just turning like maybe 19 or 20. Um, and I sat him down and I go, this movie just turned 101. <laughs> I'm curious what your thoughts are going to be on it. And he watched it and looked at me and goes, there's no way that film's 101 years old. And I go, it came out in 1921. He was mind blown. He couldn't, <laughs> he could not find where it could feel dated. He's like, this thing still holds up mm-hmm. from a practical effects side, from the emotional moments yeah, you have your tropes of the 20s, of the speed ramping. Obviously, you can tell just by a look um, that it's definitely done in that period. But it holds up yeah. as a solid film. Yeah, Chaplin definitely tapped into some very base, core, mm-hmm. foundational, organic, emotional truths. Yeah. And I think that's why... And Keaton, I feel... Keaton is amazing, but from the work that I've seen, he's definitely more stunt-related. Yeah, he's more about, uh, I think they called them thrill comedies. Yeah. Because it's it's a lot of slapstick, um, and a it's lot a of lot danger. of stunt work, a lot yeah. of danger. Um, there were the action movies of their time. Mm-hmm. And, and then you had Harold Lloyd, who was your, your kind of... Uh, f- I would call them like faith-based films, do- boy next door. Good boy next door. Yeah. Good boy. 
Yeah, faith-based <laughs> films, but without actually faith. Yeah. <laughs> you know, without, a, you know, just, stopping in the middle and going, oh, uh, thank goodness, I believe in, they, you know, whatever. Yeah, no, when I say faith-based, I mean, they're very heartwarming. Mm-hmm. They don't really push the envelope in one direction versus another. They are supposed to just be reassuring. Mm-hmm. Reassuring of people, reassuring of the goodness of humanity. Yes. Uh, it doesn't really touch upon anything that feels melancholy or it doesn't touch upon despair or hardship, whether it be economical or class or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't have enough of the action to compete with Buster Keaton. So. Okay. That's fair. I mean, they're all considered geniuses of the silent era yes i would agree they all bring something different to the table Mm -hmm. and i think there's enough difference there that you can find something that you personally prefer in your films within those three people's work now that being said we all know who the greatest genius of the silent era was douglas fairbank senior (laughs) <laughs> that just hurt my head Ouch, sorry <laughs> no he's he's fantastic don't yes, get me wrong yes. he is fantastic who are you going for Georges Millet of course <laughs> of course well he's foundational exactly my yes. point yes we we don't get anywhere without we him. don't get Monty Python without Georges Millet <laughs> I know it's so weird when you think <laughs> about where his influence resonated all the way through to heck star wars and then you know that became its own wave Mm -hmm. of influence and you know it's just mind-bogglingly i I can't even put into words really you know how how important his stuff is oh it it hurts that Mm -hmm. so much of it was destroyed um there's still Mm -hmm. enough out there that you can find um i i think a couple years ago there was like a a collection on Criterion Channel and a collection on HBO Max at the same time where you could watch I was knocking out how many Georges Millets in a day? Well, they're usually about 10 or 12 minutes. Uh, some are only a minute to three minutes yeah. long. Um, but yeah, I could spend four or five hours and watch 10 to 15 of his films and they're all just so damn good. I think mm-hmm. he really kind of pioneered it's, a lot of not just fantasy yeah. elements, but a lot of early special effects and and film um, cutting and you know film yeah. editing. He was yeah he was one of the leaders in figuring out how film should be edited, establishing that basic vocabulary alongside like people like Sergei Eisenstein and. Um, there's probably others who were also pioneering that stuff, but like you said, so much of you know Millier's stuff has been lost, as well as a lot of silent material has been lost over the years. And fires melted yes, down into um, shoe heels. Yeah, that's a thing, <laughs> by the way. If you don't know, ladies stri- and gentlemen, oh, film stripped for the silver uh, nitrate content. Mm-hmm. Um, studios going, why are we saving these silent films when we've switched to sound so they would just put them all into a truck and dump them off a pier into Santa Monica Bay? Um, yeah, Some it's, of them uh, have uh, turned a 
it just crumbled to, to dust. Yeah, but what's that smell that vinegar you get? Syndrome. Vinegar. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that um, hurts. But I actually didn't know about George Millet until I saw Hugo. Okay. Yeah, cool. that was my first mm-hmm. introduction. I had seen like his influences on in cinema growing up with Monty Python, but it wasn't until I watched Hugo by Martin Scorsese. If you haven't seen it, ladies and gentlemen, watch it. it came out in like 2011. It's fantastic. Really gives you an in-depth look at um, you know how children see the world and particularly how they're influenced by cinema, and it takes place. That's another one. Yeah. Train film. Uh, well, that's hey! right. It takes place at a train station. Darn it. Wow. Nice, nice unintentional loop Thank back you. there. I Thank like you. Thank you. I'm very proud of that one. <laughs> but Ben Kingsley plays the great Georges Millet, and we get to see some of the behind-the-scenes work recreating some of his greatest uh, films like A Trip to the Moon. Um, and if you get a chance, a lot of the George Millet films are still available through HBO Max and uh, Criterion Channel. Like I said, you could spend two, three hours, knock out 15 films. It, it's not about knocking them out, though. It's about absorbing diving them. in and just taking a look and seeing all the amazing stuff he was and they're doing. So, it's so worth the couple of hours that you'd mm-hmm. spend doing that. Yeah, you're going to walk away if you watch watch some stuff. Think about what you're seeing and then kind of go and try to relate that forward. You're going to be just like, oh, and try, it's going to be eye-opening. Yeah, and try to actually sit down and figure out how they did this without the use of a computer to go <laughs> ahead and edit and do special effects. Without the use of optical printing and matte technology like we had in the 60s and 70s Yeah, they didn't have 80s. that either. Yeah, they it's had none brilliant. of that. You know, it was all in-camera done. Uh-huh. Um, you know, there's – there's some things like you've probably seen them sometimes they get turned into gifts and shopped around on social media during like Halloween mm-hmm. of like the skeletons building the other skeleton and then yeah. it comes to life and everything. It's or, or obviously the face of the moon that gets the spaceship that lands yes. in his eye. Like that's the mm-hmm. most iconic, I think, George Millet moment of that of all time. Mm-hmm. There's there's so much wonderful stuff. And. I think there's also an energy to what we're seeing because they're like new art form. Let's see what we can do. There, there's an excitement. Let's push the boundaries about discovering what we can do with mm-hmm. this. And sometimes I think that's kind of missing from films today. Even though I enjoy a lot of modern we, cinema, I there there's a there's a vibe. I think to I, a lot of early silent stuff that. We just don't feel today. Yeah, there's no discovery because at this point we feel like, oh, the rules are set in place and we have to adhere to these rules in order to make a good film. Mm -hmm. Um, And whilst doing that, you're creating a formula and you're you're creating – and rules are meant to be broken or otherwise there are no discoveries to be had. Okay. Uh, I would – not necessarily agree with that 100%. No, um, but, but it needs it, I would also say there you would are need some to know, that you, you need would need to. to know the rules before you go on to do what you want to do if it's going to be outside of the rules. But and they I say, didn't know the rules. They true. created they the rules. Yeah, they're inventing the rules at that time. Yeah. So <laughs> God, sometimes I wish this was a video podcast because the looks on your face that you're making when you're thinking <laughs> about these things yeah. and you're like, okay, how do I debate this? Or uh, how do I agree? And that I never thought about that before. Mm-hmm. Well, that's why we do this show. 
so we can sit here and have these discussions that are hopefully entertaining for other people as well <laughs> as you know as we kind of just do our own journey as film fans and film you know writers and filmmakers as we just kind of go through and we discover things and i dare say 124 episodes ago we were different people and how we thought about these things and here it is several years later and 125 episodes and we're doing what we're doing i find it yes I, i'm i'm very proud of that actually but um i did have something i wanted to add oh is it gonna be more self-congratulatory nonsense because i'm Almost made myself kind of sick when I was talking. Wow. Right no, actually, I was going to say. <laughs> you know me. I, I don't brag on myself too much. No, you don't. Um, so. But France is such a, a powerhouse for film itself. Like mm -hmm. a lot of the early stuff. And then you had the new wave in the 60s that brought a, around great artists such as Jean-Luc Godard, François Truffaut, Jacques Demy. Like you, you have mm -hmm. so many icons of cinema who also reinvented the rules and created new rules. Can we talk about cinema as reflecting to a French icon? American cinema reacting oh, to a French I, icon. I, I think I know where this is going. Is this leading into our uh, review for this week? Does it work? Yeah, it works. So <laughs> we are, of course, talking about Napoleon from director Ridley Scott. That's going to be the subject of our review. Mm. So this is a movie that runs two and a half hours that does a mad gallop on horseback through a majority <laughs> of his life. Hitting upon the most important moments. We saw it separately from each other. Yes. Um, I actually took my mother to see it. Yes. Um, so, so let me ask you first, mm -hmm. what were your first initial impressions? If you, I was about to ask you, <laughs> if you could say in three words or less, mm -hmm. how you would describe this film, just what you thought of it, how would you describe it in three words or less? Wow. I know what this, the second and third word would be. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not sure if I can find the word I want to use to sum up what I think overall. A survey, but not comprehensive. I'm throwing an A on there to make it sound grammatically correct. Uh, it's a survey of Napoleon's life from a certain point to the end. But I don't think it gets too comprehensive into any one of the details it hits. And it hits a lot of details. It hits a lot of moments. Can I add my word in that actually is a, a, a okay. good? Okay. Dry. Now, some people were calling this a comedy. And I could see where you can find, like, his semi-social awkwardness to be funny at times. And I'm wondering if that is a Joaquin Phoenix um, acting choice or not. And I'm not sure that's a good acting choice. I didn't see it as a comedy at all. Okay, because I I did I mean there was a couple of moments where I did chuckle and I laughed. Oh, but well, but it wasn't he, like the relationship between him and Josephine is yeah, a twisted. But it's, not, it's not like I was laughing the way I did when yeah. I saw Weird the Al Yankovic story or something. <laughs> so now that'd be an interesting way to approach this movie. Um, but anyways, I found Phoenix's performance to not convince me. 
that Napoleon was the great stirring leader that always roused his men to battle, leading the charge. And I just goes like, why were these people following this clown into battle? Yeah, I was a little disappointed with that. Um, There's only one moment, and that's when he comes back from his first exile in Elba. And And he addresses the crowd. Yeah, and he addresses that crowd. And that's the only moment in the film. And I'm like, yeah, but how was he doing it for the last 20 years or so of his life that we saw depicted in this movie? I think his leadership, what they're trying to show you through this, is his leadership skill was more from being relatable to the average Joe Mm -hmm. than it was supposed to be some stirring king on on the mighty high just yeah. looking down and and saying you will obey me because i am your ruler mm-hmm. he is he came from nothing he realizes as uh what they call him a corsican yes um a corsican he, thug yeah he's not what you would consider royalty um he's very lowborn he he was raised by his wit by his strategy by his intellect um than anything else but his relatability comes from public opinion but we never i don't feel we ever really saw a whole lot of that until that one scene marginally towards the end i think with that it was his public opinion through his battles i mean Mm -hmm. for god's sake he fires into the crowd at one point yeah that was messy that there was, was some, very fucking and, messy. And honestly, that's not the messiest thing I've seen uh, this this fall. I can't talk about <laughs> where else I saw something that was nasty. Um, uh, honest, the cannonball and the horse. Mm-hmm. That, yeah, that was freaked me out a yeah, little. Yeah, that was oof. It's like, oh. <sighs> but I, I feel bad for anybody who likes horses and sees this movie because that's that that's scene disturbing. is pretty hard. That's pretty disturbing. Yeah, that was. Yeah, even I was looking at that. Go, ooh. Mm-hmm. I have nightmares about that later. <laughs> um, but overall, yeah, I we're we're trying to see him behind closed doors. Mm-hmm. We know what public opinion has based the great monolith that is Napoleon throughout history as. But Ridley is trying to approach this as who was he when the public wasn't looking in? I get that. God, this movie was so fucking dry. But but even if that's the intention here, wouldn't it be better to contrast it with his public appearance, you know, at times? And I don't think he really manages to do that. I, I do agree with you when it comes to um, how public opinion from the lower brow is not shown. Um, but I still think we get a little bit of the opposition to his fantastical story um and that comes from the leaders of europe how one person's like are you kidding me and then the other one's like uh you you would like to marry my sister but even then these these characters show up you know very briefly but they you can serve see to, there is to a, be in opposition yes they serve to be in opposition but you can see and these are coming from I, – I mean these actors are probably 15 to 20 years Joaquin's junior. And they're sitting there and they're still able to bring across 
the fact that they do not approve of him. <laughs> True. True. There is a certain clashish class class ish. Oof, that was tough. Class-ish snobbery about everything. And you can tell. Oh, yeah. Even yeah. after everything that he has done to your country, and now he's trying to make peace with you, the idea, oh, God, that you would marry into my family, you're not good enough. But despite all the classist mm -hmm. snobbery, well, there you go, I, I got it right, Yeah, that uh, is shown here. I think this film is very much dependent on Joaquin and Vanessa. Despite the great job that this cast does, the whole extended cast, including, you know, the actors who are playing the classist snobs mm -hmm. of Austria and Russia, the wonderful actress, I cannot remember her name, but I've seen her in many things, including... Uh, the stars BBC short-lived Camelot as Napoleon's mom. Rupert Everett. I love Rupert Everett as the Duke of Wellington. Uh, this movie is really sitting on the shoulders of Joaquin and Vanessa. Oh, God. Yeah. Kirby. They have to carry this movie. And they shouldn't fucking have to. I'm sorry. They shouldn't have to. This movie is so much about a life, a fantastical, grandiose, rags-to-riches story mm -hmm. for both of them. And it's filled with so many historical markers that I mean, there should be enough people coming in and out that are giving incredible performances you shouldn't have to rely on just those two uh, there are points where i'm looking at the people around them uh in their court and this is how much ridley doesn't explain who these people are or give them enough to do he actually has to put their fucking names up on the goddamn <laughs> screen actually i kind of like that on it to a certain degree simply because it's it eliminates the need for expository lines like, oh, hello, Duke of Edinburgh or whatever. You no, know. it works. Mm -hmm. But at the exact same time, they're not doing enough with them for me to fucking care what their name is. That's that's fair. That's absolutely yeah. fair. Um, I saw somebody complaining, breaking down a lot of the historical figures saying, oh, this person only gets like two lines. And this is like a very important person in this moment that they're trying to – uh, give us and yeah. show us. And that's, oh, I just realized that same person I'm uh, also said, um, and they had the best quote about this movie, actually, and I'm going to steal it. And I might have been inadvertently paraphrasing it before, but they said, this is like a fast bus tour through Napoleon's life with no stops whatsoever for us to get out and examine anything. I would agree. Yeah. That is the perfect explanation I mean, for this movie. I've always been fascinated by it's Napoleon's, museum tour. Yeah. Yeah, Napoleon's um, march through Egypt and everything and what they did there. And you get 20 seconds of that. Maybe it feels yeah. like it was like, okay, I can see 
okay, we show up, we fire one cannon shot into the pyramid, into a pyramid, you know, and blast some of the covering off of it. And the leader of the Egyptian army just falls to his knees like, fuck this. Um, I, I could see that as a condensation of a much larger military campaign. Yeah. And I, I can see that, you know, from a dramatic standpoint to express all of that like that. Mm. However, I don't think this movie ever kind of lives up to its promise. It, it constantly whets our appetite with little appetizers of these events and doesn't make a meal, doesn't make a full course out of any of it. Agreed. I don't even think it makes a full course out of his relationship with Josephine. And that should be, mm -hmm. that's what they're trying to set up is your fucking main course. Mm -hmm. and Josephine it does has not two feel kids it. who both disappear. Until the daughter is grown the daughter up and shows, shows up, up at, at the, the end. fucking end. Yeah. I, I have mean, no she's... idea what happened to the son. Nobody even throws out a line of like, oh, he died of tuberculosis. If you or actually watch it really closely, you see that daughter through many different sections of the film. But they don't really fucking explain to you who that is until the final scene they're in. Yeah. And oh, oh, that's the daughter. Okay. That's the daughter. I yeah, just she thought she was a servant lines. or a lady yeah. in waiting. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's... It's Ridley Scott. He's already talked about, yeah, there's going to be a longer director's cut coming out. This doesn't need a director's cut. This needs a fucking miniseries. Yes. It's yes. too much to and, try to squeeze in, even into a four-hour film. And if it's you not say gonna you're going to have a director's cut coming later, it should be a director's cut that expands on your theatrical cut in ways that don't harm the theatrical cut, if you know what I'm saying. If if you need to say, oh, we're putting an hour <laughs> of stuff back into this movie, and that, then it's going to make some sense to you, that's the wrong way to be doing it. Your theatrical cut should still make some fucking sense. Yeah. And Napoleon is like just not – it's not even reading the cliff notes to Napoleon's life. It's like – thumbing through them really fast it's it's not trying even trying to create a picture <laughs> yeah it's like a long wikipedia article of a of a life and i don't i just don't think this works there's some great stuff in it my god the the some of the battles are amazing waterloo the, waterloo is you know exceptionally well staged no no for me it was a major disappointment okay i'm talking cinematically now i'm not talking historical we've already decided this movie is like no, even from a cinematical the, his, standpoint. Really. Okay, well, fire away. Waterloo is one of the biggest battles in history. It was three countries, at least three countries, all at once fighting against each other. Mm -hmm. It was almost a million people. It did not feel like that watching it. It felt like maybe... 10,000 at most. Okay. You, this was... There has been nothing to actually equal it that I can think of. Mm -hmm. uh, even when you have World War One and World War Two involved, um, yeah, you had trench warfare going on during World War One, and it was horrible, but the, you never really had a Waterloo of a battle. And then when you got to World War II, it was spread across half the world, and then the other part was taking place on the other half of the world. It 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 was very more 
guerrilla-ish tactics. It, we had gone past trench warfare, uh, warfare at that time. We mm-hmm. we were now including, you know, airplanes and, and, and ships. It wasn't open field combat. Yeah. This was the nastiest battle in history, and it still kind of holds that mantle. I mean, for God's sake, Ava does a song in the 70s, You're My Waterloo. <laughs> Mm-hmm. What they're saying is you're my fucking downfall. Oh yeah, um, I don't feel like you get that here. It just felt like another battle that we were seeing in this film. It doesn't feel like it carries the weight of the entire world on its back, and that's what it should feel like. Again, that's well, I would say that's because once again, it's it's a cliff it's note a, of the a, battle. It's a cliff note of the battle. Yeah. Um, I was so excited when I was watching it and he goes, we have 120,000 of our men versus 120,000 of this one and 300,000 of this one and 120,000 of this one. Yeah, I know I may have overstated when I said a million, but (laughs) still he goes and we have to stop them from convergence here. And my brain goes, you were just in Elba 10 minutes ago. What happened to the whole Napoleonic Wars that took place almost over 10 years that included Portugal and your brother? And there was just so much yeah. shit that went on. I'll admit, I don't know a whole lot about you know European history in the 18th and 19th century during this time. But I've seen the all way- the Shops movies. <laughs> <laughs> I know this- more about the Napoleonic War from watching that than I, I ever did say, from this movie. The way this movie presents Waterloo, it's like everybody's pissed off because he's back from Elba. Not that there's this long space of time. That's how I interpreted yeah. it just watching this movie. But yes, there's a larger space of time. There was more wars of conquest and stuff like that. Oh, it was mm. nasty. It was really fucking nasty. Uh, they completely skipped over Arthur Wellesley's promotion into uh, Lord Wellington as well. Uh, there was so much that happened in the sea as well. Like You've seen Horatio Hornblower. For those of mm-hmm. you dads out there who love Master and Commander, this the took seas place are during— now battlefields. This all took mm-hmm. place yeah. during that time oh, yeah, period. And it, there's just— such a chunk of time there that we skip over in like almost two minutes and it's like okay we have to stop them in the convergence of waterloo Mm -hmm. okay all my my dreams of risk are coming to life (laughs) in front of me and then we get there and it just didn't work it it fizzled like a water balloon uh like a balloon it just Okay. It oh, it hurts so much. Uh, I mean, Ridley Scott has been on record saying he doesn't care about the historical accuracy inaccuracies. Um, I don't mind and, the and, historical inaccuracies as long as it's a it, as long as it gives me a good story. Um, like mom, my mom mentioned something about how Napoleon was buried and how he was removed and, and moved somewhere else. And I said, yeah, but that does nothing for the, our main storyline. It doesn't fucking matter. Mm-hmm. Well, what about this? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that we never saw Josephine being buried because it's, it's just fluff. 
it's just another shot and it's a setup that takes another day's worth of filming and you know maybe 40 crew and two actors to do (laughs) and what is it by us five seconds of film that we just don't need that's true um my problem is i don't mind if there's you know historical inaccuracies if it's not you know 100 percent you know precise to the history of the moment but if it tells a larger truth about that moment Mm -hmm. and there's a longer stretch of narrative that tells this this person's story Mm. and yeah you may have to elide some details you may have to take one or two characters and combine them into a you know one or two historical personages, excuse yeah, me. Yeah, no, I've seen that, that into done a character. before. Yeah, that's fine. I don't think Ridley Scott does that here. There's some great footage, uh, some great moments, some gr- some good acting here and there. But this movie, unfortunately, does not add up to what I was hoping for in terms of a story about Napoleon. It's a good watch, but it needs mm-hmm. the Fairway Downs treatment. Wow, okay. <laughs> you didn't think I was going to go there, I did you? I was not expecting that. Well, you, you've seen what they're doing with Baz Luhrmann's Australia mm-hmm. by taking a lot of the footage that was shot and cut from the film and creating a TV show for Hulu. Mm-hmm. This needs to be a miniseries or it needs to be a television show. I, it, I would be more interested in sitting down and watching 10 hours of a new Napoleon project that kind of worked on more of a historical basis and got into a lot more of these things and than sitting down and spending arcs. two and a half hours watching this again. It was not great. And I, I oh, don't even get me started on the score. Okay, actually get me started okay. on the score. because So what about me. that score? Holy fuck. <laughs> what the hell was he thinking? Half of the film, I the first half of the film, I actually sat there going, is there a score here? That Ridley Scott didn't lift from the 2005 Pride and Prejudice movie. <laughs> yeah, you, you. When we talked after the first time after you had seen it, I know you love Pride and Prejudice, and y- you. I think that was the first thing out of your mouth was, "Why did he rip off that music?" <laughs> uh, using Vivaldi a little later on, which was famously also used in this. Sofia Coppola, Marie Antoinette from 2006. Makes sense because this music may have actually existed during that time period. Mm. If you're not going to use your own original score, then yes, you use classical music of the time period or you find something relatively classical to put towards it when you're looking at a costume drama. But ripping off a very famous film score create what is supposed to be your most important piece of music the love theme between napoleon and josephine one of the things i love about coppola uh when coppola did marie antoinette was she had created a hyper realistic anachronistic world while still making it feel like you were sitting into a costume drama, but it was still modern. And the way that she did that was uh, the crazy candy colors of your, your set and your costumes, and then starting to use modern songs. And a lot of the way the 
the energy and the cutting of the editing was done was to make it seem faster, more modern. Like you weren't watching a costume drama. You were watching just your friends in costumes. But a modern movie. Here, this is a costume drama. It definitely feels historical. It feels like you're you're sitting mm-hmm. through that heaviness. And the most important piece of music was lifted from a very famous movie. <laughs> and I'm well, not the only one who noticed it. I was sitting in the theater. I actually know someone else who was in that theater at that mm-hmm. time. They were sitting in the pit. Okay. And I heard I heard them start laughing <laughs> when it happened. Okay. I heard someone in the back row go, "Oh, come on." Like they it wasn't like me where they were like, "Oh, come on." It was more of a case of just like, "Oh, come on." And I sat there, and at first I thought I was hearing things. And then I realized I wasn't and I got very pissed off. Mm-hmm. Very fucking pissed off. That's, uh, that's because it's distracting. That's fair. That's fair. Now, it's happened before in movies uh, where you're sitting there listening to a piece of score and going, "Wow, this sounds familiar." It reminds me of this other thing. And yes, it can be distracting. Want to know the world's uh, biggest uh, lift from another piece of um, film scoring? Mm. John Williams' main theme from Star Wars. Yeah. Sounds really similar to um, Eric, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Eric Corngold's uh, theme for the 1942 movie King's Row. Okay. With um, Ronald Reagan, I think, is in it. And a lot of people have been like, over the years, have been like, I love Williams, I love Star Wars, but that's a little too close for comfort. <laughs> similar? Very similar. And there is your answer between the two. That was similar, meaning he was inspired. It could have been an homage. Well, hold on. Let me pause. I will play you some music. I will drop it into the recording of this, and then um, we will continue this, okay? Mm Mm-hmm. First of all, your reaction to the uh, the Williams stuff is it's very similar, and there's also plenty of other instances of John Williams sounding a lot like stuff like uh, Holst's The Planets, 
uh, things like that. Similar, Very though, similar. you're putting your own flair on it. Uh, to a point, but he does start off like the first measure, measure and a half is dun, 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 you know, and he's changing the rhythm of it a little bit, but it's the and same changing types of some of the notes as well. A little bit, but it's still some of the same progressions going forward in terms of chord progressions. This sounds very similar. Um, what you played for me now without getting a clean listen at the soundtrack of that Ridley Scott was using for that scene versus the, you know, the soundtrack version from Pride and Prejudice that you played me. It's hard to, you know, say definitively, but I will defer to you because you are the Pride and Prejudice fan here. You probably have fallen asleep to that score. So many times. Yes. You know it literally in your sleep. I've gone, so. yes, I've gone on walks and have just played it because it's very soothing and comforting. Mm-hmm. It is not some obscure piece of music. Um, I'm not saying that the King's Row is, but it's, I will. You, it's from 1942. You know, but not a lot of people today know it. No. And I, I think possibly it's not even that the music is not known. I've never even heard of that movie. And I am really good with my, my 30s and 40s and 50s <laughs> stuff, as you well know. Mm-hmm. I do recommend it, though. I saw it on Turner Classic years ago. It's fantastic. But according to also the video that we just got done watching where we got our samples, the gentleman said there was a 30-year gap. Mm-hmm. There isn't even a 20-year gap. True. Between these two pieces. And this 2000, the 2005 Pride and Prejudice is considered a very definitive film when it comes to some of the um, film adaptations of classic literature. Um, there is a lot of people who argue, oh, the, the 95 Pride and Prejudice versus the two, the TV, you know, the Colin Firth, Matthew, whatever. But the 2005 film, for its aesthetic, and mm-hmm. not it doesn't have to be a exact Pride and Prejudice lifted from the book as a story. It is considered one of the best classical literature adaptations of all time. I know. So to go ahead and rip something from a very famous movie, very fucking famous and have that as your leg to stand on to bolster this love story between your two leads. It's not good, and it doesn't make them look good. No. no. And considering and this whole film is riding on their shoulders, you're not helping their case. No. And I am going to take a slight tangent here to chuckle at the irony of you saying – doesn't give them a leg to stand on. When in <laughs> King's Row, one of the major plot points is Ronald Reagan's character is in an accident and they have to amputate his legs. <laughs> I didn't even know that. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, probably the best Reagan's ever looked. Oh, oh, it's, oh my God. He, he, he's not, Ooh. let's face it, Ronald Reagan is not a great actor, but the scene where, you know, he kind of wakes up and finds out that they've amputated him his legs and everything, I think is probably one of the few good moments he has on screen oh, as okay. an actor. I, yeah, I'll give him that. Newt Rockney, All-American, probably another good one. Uh, most of his other stuff, he's kind of just a, a semi-charming lunkhead. Honest, I've never seen a single one of his movies. 
Wow. Um, uh, oh, wait. The TV version of The Killer. Um, he plays a um, a mob boss. It's his last thing he did before he got out of acting it into politics and ran, you know, began running for mayor or mayor of California, uh, governor of California. And he's kind of effective there, too. But yeah, I mean, his his film career is kind of unremarkable, except for I'm very familiar that he was an actor, but none of his films really seem like something I need to watch in I would order say to King's fulfill Row, my my film knowledge. I, I would recommend King's Row and Newt Rockne All American. Okay. Um, maybe Bedtime for Bonzo. It's a screwball comedy. It's not an A list screwball comedy. I hate screwball comedies. But you know, I, I would recommend seeing it if you wanted to know why people were making fun of him during his presidential campaign. <laughs> Okay, I'm in. Okay. You know, you're just kind of like, okay, it's a fine little film of a man and his monkey. But Oh, I did hear about that yeah. one. But, you know, it it'll it'll give you the basis to understand those jokes. But. Yeah. I I just I just find it it's detrimental to the film to go ahead and lift someone else's score. True. Um when you really don't have much that your film is standing on. Mm -hmm. And this movie as a whole has so much good to it, but they're not working in unison. The gears are not working correctly with each other. There are a couple that are completely shut off and they're just, they're just, you know, sitting there looking pretty and shiny. I was hoping that if if you're, you're supporting cast and your set and all that wasn't working with your main actors, maybe mm -hmm. at least the score could tell this story and bring them along and lead them. To provide some cohesion. Yes. And I, yeah, I can see Nothing. where. No. It's just Joaquin and Vanessa. And Vanessa gives one of the best performances I've seen in the quite a while from her i loved her in pieces of a woman i think she's fabulous on the crown mm -hmm. i've seen some of her work through national theater live um we don't talk about hobbs and shaw here she is definitely joaquin's equal and i can see how she why she was cast when uh jody comer had to leave the project honest jody you made a good choice and i'm saying this as someone who is very much a ridley scott fan i i love yeah. his work I think in the last couple of years, he's gotten a little too big for his britches. It needs to be spanked <laughs> wow. because he's not, he's not turning out such good quality as he thinks he is. Mm -hmm. The last duel was fantastic. House of Gucci was not. <laughs> no. This has potential if it was in a different medium other than movie. True. And on that note, though, um, seeing as how I agree with you, <laughs> we're going to wrap it up for this uh, episode. Napoleon is in theaters right now. If we haven't dissuaded you from going to see it, if you're looking for a night out, uh, there are worse options. There are also better options as well. Remember that you can find us online at bigpicturepod.com, and we are now available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. So either use the link in the show notes post or head directly there, search and hit subscribe. 
And if you like what you're hearing, please leave a positive review because that always helps us connect with new listeners. So I hear we've got a special one coming up next week. Oh, all of our episodes are special. Is Christmas but this is all a... around? Yes, it is. Yee! Next week, we will be back uh, with our anniversary look at... A Christmas classic from 2003. A modern Christmas classic. A modern Christmas classic. That's right. Richard Curtis's Love Actually. And that'll be all right here on the Big Picture Podcast. Mom.